Hello, everybody. Good evening. Can you hear me more or less? Yeah? Okay. I'm Carola Frege. I'm a professor of international employment relations um, at the Department of Management. And I very much welcome you um, coming today to LSE in such a lovely evening. Um, I'm very excited and pleased uh, to welcome Iris Bonny uh, to the LSE this evening as a guest of the management department. Um, Iris is a professor for public policy and a director of the Women in Public Policy program at the Harvard Kennedy School. And as a behavioral economist, uh, her research focuses primarily on trust and decision-making with a uh, perspective on gender and cross-cultural topics. Uh, she did her PhD in Europe at the University of Zurich in economics and became a research fellow at Berkeley before starting as an assistant professor at Harvard. Her um, book, which she is going to present today, is called What Works? Gender Equality by Design. You may have seen it outside. And the book is essentially talking about one of the main causes of gender equality uh, at workplaces and in our societies generally, which is unconscious bias. And she's going to tell us a little bit more how practically organizations in our societies can deal with that kind of unconscious bias um, and the um, uh, gender equality which comes out of that. So I'm very excited about this um, because I'm not just a professor here. I actually started to be the chair of the uh, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Task Force at the LSE. Um, and we are actually trying to implement what Iris is suggesting today. So for me, this is going to be um, an interesting learning experience. Um, so I really want you to welcome Iris to this very exciting talk. Before we do that, I just want to tell you a few housekeeping things. Um, if you are a Twitter user, um, the hashtag for today is LSE Bonnet. Um, the lecture is going to be recorded. There's going to be a podcast. So I really urge you to switch off your mobile phones um, to not intervene with the um, podcasting. Um, there's going to be, as usual, a Q&A session afterwards. And there's also going to be an opportunity for you to buy the book, if you want it, outside after the lecture. And Iris uh, offered to sign it if you want. So, but for now, I really want you to join me in welcoming Iris to deliver this very exciting talk today uh, under the title, What Works? Gender Equality by Design. Thank you so much. Good evening, everyone, and thank you so much, Carola, for this very kind introduction. So it's a great pleasure to be here with all of you tonight and talk a bit about what we know about what works and what doesn't work to close gender gaps. I'm going to focus in particular on gender gaps and economic opportunity, but you'll see some of the insights that I'm hoping to share tonight will be more generally applicable. And I'm not just focusing on organizations but also on other kinds of environments, such as schools. But let me start by kind of meeting you where I think some of you might be at this point. Some of you might be here tonight because you care about this pyramid. 
because you are concerned about the fact that we have an increasing share of women at the entry level, really across the world, and then very, very few women at the top. However, let me suggest to you that really you should care about this topic because for some women, for some girls, this quite literally is a matter of life and death. This was the cover of The Economist a few years ago. The United Nations now estimates that about 200 million girls and women are missing across the world because of sex-selective abortion or neglect during the first five years. Some preference is prevalent in many, many parts of the world, and many have thought this is a problem too big to even address. But I'm starting with this because, in fact, it does have a bit of a happy ending. A colleague of mine, Rob Jensen, took this on. He's a development economist, and he was interested in the following question. Do even the poorest of the poor care about the returns on investment? Meaning, what if we increased economic opportunities for these girls? Would parents actually be more likely to quite literally feed them, send them to school, and take them to the doctor? And what he did was he ran a randomized control trial, an experiment in India, where he exploited the fact that in the 90s, many call centers moved into India and hired women. And what he was trying to understand was, what if he offers training opportunities? In fact, he hired a company to do that. What if he offers training opportunities in 200 villages to women to become call center workers? And then he has control treatment, 200 villages which don't get any training. And then he can see whether, in fact, these women who've gotten the training are more likely to go and work. But more importantly, whether this translates into how parents treat they're zero to five-year-olds. He's been running this experiment for 10 years, and he did, in fact, find that it works, that it increases survival chances of these girls, it increased their health outcomes, and they were more likely to be in school. So we can't say this was completely rational on the... Oh, excuse me. Uh, we can't say that this was completely rational on the part of the parents, because these weren't millions of new jobs. But very often, seeing is believing. And even if you just see a few role models, a few examples, particular, in particular if they are counter-stereotypical examples, this can start changing what we think is possible for ourselves. But let me take you back um, to this part of the world. In fact, I'm going to go even further west back to the United States and introduce you to Heidi Rosen. Heidi, uh, oh, Heidi Rosen and my... Okay. <laughs> But I did that very elegantly, have to give me that. <laughs> uh, Heidi Rosen is a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley, and she did a number of interesting things, building uh, enterprises, buying enterprises, investing in enterprises, building a network in Silicon Valley. But what is interesting for our purposes right now is that a colleague, a colleague of mine at the Harvard Business School, Kathleen McGinn, wrote a case about Heidi Rosen a few years ago. This case now has been used really across the world, and maybe some of you have come across Heidi as well, to teach students about gender bias in our classrooms. And this is how we do it. 
we give half of the students the case of Heidi Rosen, describing what she did, and then the other half will get the case with the name being changed to Howard. And then we do a survey after the students have read the case, and we ask the students how did they like the case, how did they like Heidi or Howard, did they think Heidi and Howard did do a good job, and would they be willing to hire the protagonist. And as you might suspect, I'm telling you the story because students time and time again will rate Heidi and Howard as equally as competent and effective in their jobs, but they don't like Heidi and don't want to hire Heidi. So what women experience, or what Heidi experiences in this moment, is a bias that is due to the fact that she is not only in a counter-stereotypical job as a venture capitalist, but she's also behaving counter-stereotypically by being assertive, by being a leader. And that's really what we're up against, and Carol has already mentioned it, that not all gender bias, but some of gender bias is due to our unconscious selves. This is about good people, like everyone in this room, who kind of want to do the right thing, but don't get around to doing it. What I'm arguing is that we, in fact, have to make it easier for all of us to do the right thing. Let me show you um, this image for a moment. And I want to ask you to compare squares A and B for me. And I presume that most of you see square B as being lighter than square A. Let me now cover the surroundings. And I presume that now most everyone sees that they, in fact, have the same color. I am going to go back because I can see that you don't completely trust me. <laughs> so I am going to go back here and show you the image again. So what happens in your minds here is that your minds make sense of the pattern that you see. And you see a checkerboard here. And logic tells you that a light square has to be next to a dark square. Therefore, B has to be lighter than A. And you're also taking this little shadow there into account, which is covering B. And you're concluding that B must be a light square. When in fact, when I cover the surrounding, what I am doing is I'm quite literally liberating your minds to see square B for what it really is, namely another dark square. So that's what we're trying to achieve here with behavioral design. We're quite literally trying to liberate your minds to seeing talent for what it is and not for who they are. In fact, there are some very interesting examples of places where this has worked. This is an orchestra, and in the 70s, some of the major orchestras in the United States came up with a simple but very effective design innovation. Namely, they had musicians audition behind a curtain. This was introduced at the same time as orchestra directors went on record saying, of course, they, of all people, only cared about the music that was produced, and certainly not whether somebody looked the part. It turns out that research reveals that the curtains increased the chances that women would advance to more advanced rounds by 
and it contributed to an increase from about 5% female musicians in the 70s to now almost 40% female musicians on those major orchestras. So curtains are quite attractive, but I want you to keep the curtain in the back of your mind, also a bit as a metaphor for what we're trying to achieve here. I am actually a fan of blinding ourselves to the demographic characteristics of job applicants more generally, but I don't mean to just focus on blindness, but also push our thinking a bit further and build more on insights into how our minds work. So behavioral design is where I want to take you tonight. And I want to leave you, before I talk about gender interventions, with one other metaphor here. Many of you must have been in a hotel room where the room key card did not only serve the purpose to open and close the doors, but also to turn lights on and off. And as you might imagine, this is so much more effective in, in fact, keeping lights off than anything else hotels could be doing. And this is, again, about good people, well-meaning people, who kind of do care about the environment, but in the heat of the moment, don't remember or don't get to turning the light off in the bathroom. Of course, this is quite different from the kinds of things that we have been doing so far. Most organizations have heavily invested in diversity training programs, in leadership training programs, negotiation training, networking, mentorship type of initiatives. And the first part of the book um, has been trying to really go out there and seek evidence on whether these types of approaches are working. And there's two things I found. The first one is we don't measure nearly enough. Generally, we collectively just throw money at the problem and hope that something great will come out of it. In the US, estimates run that at about $8 billion a year that are spent on diversity training programs. In fact, the evidence on diversity training programs is probably the most disappointing one. I couldn't find organizational evidence, but I could go into schools where people, in fact, have run experiments with giving some schools or some classes in schools diversity training and others not. I also used evidence on reconciliation, which often is actually based on diversity training curriculums, and I've not come across any evidence that diversity training is working. In fact, some correlational analyses which have looked at whether a company has a diversity training program and how diverse the workforce of that company is have found zero correlation between the two. So diversity training, I don't think, is the way to go. It does get better as we're looking at some of these other types of interventions. So for example, in terms of mentorship, sponsorship, and networking, the evidence is more encouraging. That some of these initiatives which literally help build capacity of traditionally disadvantaged groups, including women, can actually move the needle to some degree. But I want to argue tonight that these programs, which you might want to call either fixing the mind program or self-help programs, are not going to move the needle enough to really make a big difference. And that, in fact, what we have to do is to go into organizations and change how we do things. But that's where I want to take you now and first talk about the big topic of talent management. 
I'll then talk a bit more about what other things organizations can do, schools and uh, workplaces, to de-bias the, the environment. And then finally, I'll talk about the third bucket, which is probably the hardest one, and that is making diversity in teams work. But let me start with designing talent management. I'm going to start, in fact, with relatively low-hanging fruit. And that is most organizations start by trying to recruit or attract the right kinds of people. And interestingly enough, we have been spending quite a bit of time thinking about advertisements more generally, but not so much on advertisements of jobs. So gendered ads are no news at all. So here's Coca-Cola, could have picked Pepsi, could have picked any other soft drink company, and really many other companies. But Coca-Cola realized a few years ago that diet wasn't for men, either because men don't care about the calories they consume or they run more or because diet is not their word. And so Coca-Cola <laughs> came up with Coke Zero. Pepsi introduced Pepsi Max. And of course, there is Venus Gillette, for those of us who prefer pink to blue. I'm not saying this is the right or wrong thing to do. I am describing that this is happening, and it is actually happening based on real evidence and real experiments. We've never used this kind of scrutiny to think about our job advertisements. So here is a potential language that you might be using, but you shouldn't be using, if your school's objective was to hire more male teachers. Let me read this to you. Looking for a warm and caring teacher with exceptional pedagogical and interpersonal skills to work in a supportive, collaborative work environment. Now, the adjectives that we printed in yellow are, of course, gender stereotypical adjectives that we generally tend to associate with women. An alternative ad could have been something like this, looking for an excellent teacher with exceptional pedagogical skills. Now, I'm not even saying schools should go with the second ad. They might come back to me and say, but we really care about the caring, and we really think the collaboration is important to us. But then they should know that this will significantly reduce the chances that men will apply. There's a very good research controlling for how gendered the job is. So is this a teaching job or a nursing job versus an engineering job? So controlling for how gendered the job is, and then just looking at the adjectives that were used in the ads, significantly affects who applies. So that seems to me to be really low-hanging fruit if companies and governments and NGOs really wanted to benefit from 100% of the talent pool. But let's go to somewhat more high-hanging fruit. We're now going to be talking about evaluating of job candidates. And this is a bit more challenging for many reasons, but one important one being that most people think that they are brilliant interviewers. Because we'll just feel whether somebody's a good fit for our company. <laughs> and, you know, in my case, um, it's actually a true story. Um, I served as the academic dean of the Kennedy School for a while, and I interviewed a job candidate for a faculty position, and it turns out she was a synchronized swimmer like I was, and immediately I was like, yes, 
That's a great predictor of future success at Harvard. <laughs> and that's what happens. If you ask people what they look for, interviewers aren't shy to say, I'm kind of looking for somebody who looks like me. Because that's kind of what all these interviewers have to go by. So that's what we're up against. That in our gut, we think we're really good at this. But let me unpack the picture that you have in front of you here a little bit. Because I have this somewhat cheesy stock photo here to suggest to you that everything you see here is wrong. So let me um, talk about kind of three different uh, insights. The first one is, if your organization does panel interviews, stop. Why? Because these three people will not come up with independent assessment of the candidate. They will influence each other and fall prey to something that psychologists have referred to as group think where, in fact, the group comes up with a worse assessment, a worse quality assessment of lower quality than the three individuals would have done if they had separately interviewed the candidate and, for example, submitted their ratings to a machine which, which would have just calculated the average. So panel interviews are not a good thing to do. And when I talk to organizations, as I have today, or companies, they will, of course, then tell me, oh, but the, this is much more time efficient. At which point they have to say, having separate interviews is actually not more costly for the interviewers. Everyone has to spend half an hour. You just don't do it at the same time. It is more time-consuming for the job candidate. So that is certainly something to think about, but not for the interviewers. So that's the first insight. A second myth, that's more of a myth, is that diversity on the evaluation committee itself will solve the problem. These biases are shared. And I'm simplifying a little bit here, but just a little bit. Your own demographic characteristics are much less important than you think in determining how biased you are. It is much more important what you see. And if you don't see male kindergarten teachers or female engineers, you don't associate those jobs with men or women, respectively, and you will be biased against counter-stereotypical candidates. I am not saying that diversity on these selection committees generally is a bad thing. What is helpful is that these people will have different networks and might reach out to different communities to advertise the job. But it doesn't solve the bias problem in evaluations. Thirdly, and I'm of course now doing a lot of interpretation into this picture, we should really focus our minds on comparative evaluations. It turns out that one insight of behavioral science that is pretty fundamental is that absolute judgments are basically impossible for our minds to make. So whether or not you like the tea or coffee that you had for breakfast this morning has something to do with the kinds of coffees or the kinds of teas that you're used to. And the same is true when you evaluate people. You want to compare the person who is in front of you with some reference point, with some reference person, which, if you don't have other people available to compare with, is going to be this little person who is sitting up here, which tends to be the stereotype. And so what we've shown in our experiments is that we can actually debunk the stereotype by exposing you to more than one candidate at the same time and forcing you to explicitly compare these candidates with each other.
So, what are you going to do for those of you who already are working in organizations and have some power over changing procedures? First of all, and that's not rocket science, the best predictor of future performance is a work samples test. If you can think of a test that kind of mimics the jobs that the person is going to be involved in once he or she is hired, that of course leads to larger correlations between your hiring ratings and the actual job performance. So work sample tests are very, very promising. But social scientists have been preaching that for a long time without, in fact, that much success, suggesting to me that we really like the interview. And we really feel like we need to see the person before we hire somebody. And so here's what you can do. You can move away from unstructured interviews and instead use structured interviews. What do I mean with a structured interview? That is an interview which you basically pre-design beforehand. You determine the questions that you want to ask, you ask the same questions of all your candidates, you ask them the same order, and you rate answers to each question after the question has been answered. There's, um, this is actually literally a copy from the book where I'm trying to provide a checklist um, based on the evidence that we have to date of what a productive structured interview could look like. At this point, you're probably thinking, well, she started out with this pyramid here. So clearly, at the hiring stage, bias might be less important. Why don't we also talk about promotions? Because where we lose women is as we are climbing up the career ladder. So let me move on to that and tell you a bit more about performance appraisals and promotions and what you can do to improve those. So, here are kind of three insights about promotions. The first one is not rocket science either, but it first had to be discovered. It was actually discovered uh, both on Wall Street as well as at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, which has been at the forefront, I should argue, in really trying to understand the potential of gender bias. What MIT discovered was that their female faculty were not given the same kind of support as their male faculty. And support quite literally meant using a measuring rod, going to people's offices, measuring the size of the office, but also counting the number of research assistants, the research support, financial support, laboratory spaces, and of course pay. This later was coined performance support bias and has been found in a number of organizations where women were given, for example, stockbrokers, worse performing accounts to start with. So that is something to look out for. Then secondly, here's another important insight, and that is that many organizations evaluate their employees and performance appraisals based on past performance, quite literally on the x-axis, and future potential on the y-axis. It turns out that when we work with organizations where we typically find gender bias, is in potential evaluations. And that's not so surprising because we can measure performance more easily, it's more easily quantifiable, it's backwards looking. And potential, of course, opens the door to the Heidi problem that I just described to you before, where we cannot imagine that somebody would want to become a leader, would want to climb up the career ladder. 
So potential is a difficult problem for us collectively because while we can acknowledge that performance is more easily measurable, we probably also agree that there are moments where we don't want to base our decisions on what the person has done in the past because people might change career trajectories, might want to move from an engineering job to a more managerial job. And so potential is kind of an interesting concept. But what I advise organizations that I work with, um, they should be doing, is to define what they mean with potential. And that definition, of course, can't be, I look at somebody and I just feel it. That is, of course, the wrong answer. But you really have to unpack potential and say, what is it? Leadership potential. Well, but what's leadership potential? Is that the ability to lead a team effectively? Is that communication skills? Is it dispute resolution skills? Is it, what is it? And maybe most importantly, just keep measuring. And what you see on my slides here, of course, suggests to you that measurement is absolutely key. And if organizations don't do anything other than just measuring what's broken, I think that would actually be a lot of progress already. Because at this point, I fear much too much money is just spent on fixing something that might not be broken or that might not be working, as in diversity trainings. So measurement is a first step to kind of acknowledging that something is going on. Thirdly, and that's now, I think, kind of relatively easy to understand, once I've talked about kind of comparative evaluations, it can be very useful to calibrate our performance appraisals kind of across departments to get a sense of what's going on in our organizations more broadly. And one thing that any organization should stop doing is the following. Many organizations ask their employees to self-evaluate themselves before the manager evaluates them. And that's still not such a big deal. But then these organizations, including Harvard, I should say, ask employees to share their self-evaluations with their managers. Now, if women are less self-confident than men, they will give themselves lower ratings. And that, of course, is going to affect your manager's evaluations. And it's not just gender bias that we found. It's also cultural differences. There are certainly cultures that will remain unnamed uh, that are more comfortable with bragging. <laughs> There's no evidence suggesting that sharing self-evaluations or these ratings with managers does any good. So let's leave talent management behind for a moment. These are just some kind of quick insights of the kinds of things that have been studied, that have been evaluated, and that we can learn from and improve how we attract talent, how we evaluate talent, and then how we promote talent. But now let's kind of go slightly broader and look at the design of our organizations. In fact, I want to go back to something that certainly the majority in this room has been relatively recently involved in and you might still be involved in, and that is test-taking. So in many, in all countries really, in all countries, um, people have to take tests, and in many countries, a part of these tests is multiple choice. This is research that is based on the work by Katie Baldiga-Kaufman, who was a doctoral student of mine, who was concerned about 
the most important test that American students ever have to take, which is the SAT. It is hugely important in determining which college or which university students can go to. A fraction of the SAT is multiple choice. And here's why she was concerned. There's lots of evidence suggesting that women are more risk-averse than men. If that is true, then women might not be willing to guess in these contexts when they don't know the right answer quite as much as men do. So let me unpack this for a moment. So in most tests, including in the SAT, you get some points for right answers. In the SAT, that was one point. And then you get deductions for wrong answers. In the SAT, that was a quarter point deduction. Of course, what that means is that a little bit of math is going to tell you what the optimal test-taking strategy is, which means you should guess if you can exclude at least one alternative. You know Napoleon wasn't a Roman emperor, so, and then you guess. And that's exactly what Katie wanted to study. So she brought people into the laboratory, had them take the SAT, and then, given that this was a lab study, she forced everyone in the second round to answer every question. So people couldn't skip, couldn't leave out questions, which they can do in the regular SAT. So she measured what people would have known had they answered all questions. And what she could find, what she found was that for equally able men and women, women perform worse on the SAT because they are less likely to guess and more likely to skip. Now, this also has a happy ending. We lucked out that in 2012, the college board elected a new chair, Dave Coleman, who was very open to redesigning the SAT and improving the SAT. And one of the design innovations, there were a number, one of the design innovations was to gender debias the test, which is quite dramatic given that the test has now been conducted for about 100 years. And here's what the College Board decided to do. They could have done many things. Katie, in fact, studied a number of possible interventions. The College Board decided in the end to take away the penalty from wrong answers. And so quite literally leveling the playing field independent of your propensity to take risk. At which point, of course, the criticism was, oh my God, you're now inviting wild guessing. At which point the answer has to be, we have been inviting guessing by 50% of the population for about 100 years, <laughs> and now we're leveling the playing field for everyone. That is the power of design. But let me take this a bit further and go back to India. India, um, unbeknownst to many people, was one of the first countries to introduce quotas. In 1993, India amended its constitution with the provision that a third of village heads had to be female. What was beautiful from a research point of view was that the third was quite literally picked out of a hat. So researchers could evaluate what difference difference really makes. And they found many things. The one that I want to focus on here is the following. In villages which had been exposed to two village leaders in those a bit more than 20 years now, mindsets start to change, and villagers started to associate political leadership with women, including reporting that one of the core career aspirations for their daughters is to become a politician. So mindsets can change. I don't think they can change by me just telling you what the right thing to do is. But they can change through a feedback mechanism, through experience. So when you 
experience counter-stereotypical people, when you see these counter-stereotypical female leaders, you're starting to associate these jobs with women, something you wouldn't have done beforehand. So role models do matter, whether in front of the classroom or as political leaders, and even on our walls. So I am embarrassed to say that it's only 11 years ago that at the Kennedy School, Jenny Mansbridge, who is a professor um, at the Kennedy School on your right, noticed that of all the portraits of leaders on our walls, exactly zero were of women. 50% of our students are women, and I think I can say with certainty, it wasn't our conscious intention to signal to our female students that leadership wasn't for them. But of course, things like that happen unconsciously. Right? That is the point of it. So thankfully, Jenny noticed, and we now commissioned a number of portraits of female leaders, including of Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who you see here, the president of Liberia, is also a graduate of the school. And there is, while this is a story, there is real research showing that even what you see on portraits or paintings on the wall matters and affects what you think is possible. Now here's some good news. Change is happening. We now even have a female protagonist in Star Wars with Rey. But this, in fact, does not have such a happy ending in that you probably have read that Monopoly created a special version of Monopoly based on this particular episode of Star Wars, but forgot to include the female characters. <laughs> it's a true story, but I should add that Monopoly since has corrected this. But it just goes to tell you how deep these biases run. So that's what we're up against. Let me end by talking a little bit about designing diversity. And as I mentioned, this is a really hard topic. It's a hard topic because diversity doesn't come naturally to us. We kind of love people who look like ourselves. I know you wouldn't necessarily, I know, you wouldn't necessarily want to be there, but yeah. Um, so here's the problem. If you run experiments with diverse teams and homogenous teams, what we often find is that the diverse teams will report afterwards that they don't think their team performed particularly well and that the task wasn't particularly enjoyable. Because diversity is hard work. That is the idea of diversity, that we create a diversity of viewpoints, that people disagree, that people work through the problems and have a real debate. But that, of course, is harder than just running into one direction and just feeling how wonderful it is that we are all so completely aligned. And that's what makes diversity really hard. Now, I can say that I have the silver bullet. I don't think anyone has. But let me give you kind of some ideas of what has been shown to work. And one of them is actually a very old one. That's not a particularly new insight. And that is that, yes, numbers do matter. And critical mass does matter. And critical mass roughly is around a third, 30%, 33%, or three of a kind. But importantly, diversity is not just a numbers game. It also includes the rules of engagement that we have on our teams, including the norms that you agree on before you even start the teamwork. Why is that? 
Let me illustrate this with two images here. And my question to you is, where would you be more likely to drop a piece of paper? Probably most of you would be more likely to do that on the dirty beach. So what you want to do is create an environment where nobody drops a dirty joke. You want to create an environment where it's safe for everyone to contribute, where different contributions are acknowledged, where people, in fact, attribute your comment to you rather than the person who looks the part, etc. I think that's where research has to go. I think we don't have enough evidence yet on how you actually make this happen. There are some very interesting papers on political correctness, kind of starting to unpack the norms that teams use to make the teams perform better. There's one organization that I've actually observed, this is not research, but where I've observed how they enforce teams, enforce norms on teams. And that is, they gave everyone a little red flag. And the little red flag was shown whenever gender norms were violated. And that included evaluating job candidates or, or candidates for promotion and talking about him as being just a great person and her as having talent. But it also includes not attributing somebody's comment to the person who made the comment, but to the person who looks the part. So really what we're trying to do here is increase the transparency of the unspoken norms of interaction that guide our teams and bring them into the open. And many of you, of course, are norm entrepreneurs. I had the littering example up there, not just because it's kind of illustrating my point, but also because that is an example where in a generation we have completely changed the norms. I'm actually reading a book with my son by Eric Kessner, who is a German author, and it was written in 1934. And Emil is riding on the train, he's kind of the main character, and he throws out the paper um, out of the window of the train. And my nine-year-old son, I have to tell you, kind of, it's beyond comprehension. <laughs> I think the next generation, I mean, even my generation already, right? I wouldn't drop uh, a paper on the floor even if nobody observed me. So those norms have completely changed. So it's, we are able to change norms. But let me give you some insights on what such norm entrepreneurship could look like. So one insight is that Whatever we try to communicate around norms has to be simple, has to be salient, and it has to be comparative. I have a food example up here um, because it's actually quite interesting that in the United States, we've been using these pyramids for decades to change norms of eating. Now, what's wrong with the pyramid? Here is a very deep insight, and that is that we do not eat of pyramids. We eat of plates, and so the new image that is now being used in the U.S. is a plate. <laughs> and as you can see from the image, it is so much easier to understand whether you eat too much dairy, too little dairy, too, mu too many fruits, too little fruit, whatever it might be. So presentations do matter. Let me end by bringing this back to this country here. I think the UK has actually played a leading role in norm entrepreneurship in the gender domain, in particularly in regards to gender diversity and corporate boards. 
Some of you might recall the Davis Report, where Lord Davis, but also a number of other organizations, it was a big coalition between the government, the private sector, the 30% club, a number of NGOs, determined to increase gender diversity on corporate boards in the UK without relying on quotas, but relying on many of the insights that we're discussing here tonight. And they have, in fact, achieved their goal. The goal that they set for themselves was to increase the fraction of women on corporate boards of the FTSE 100 companies to at least 25% by the end of 2015, and they're now at around 26%. But let me give you um, a bit of an illustration of what norm entrepreneurship can look like. This was the brochure that was shared with me in 2013 when I got a call from the office of then Secretary of Business, Vince Cable. And this was the cover of the brochure where they were talking about the kinds of things that they had been doing so far. In 2013, the fraction of women on the FTSE 100 um, boards already was 17%, and that's what you're seeing here. So looking at the 100 biggest companies, fraction of women um, on their boards, 17%. Here's why I was worried. I was worried that a descriptive norm can turn into a prescriptive norm, not just describing how the world is, but prescribing what the world should look like. In fact, there's lots of evidence suggesting that that's happening in our minds. So what we did was to redesign that brochure. We did a number of other things, but redesigned that brochure. So we're still focusing on the FTSE 100 companies. So these are the 100 companies that you see here. But we're now focusing on are the companies which already are gender diverse, who already have gender diverse boards. And at the time, 94 out of the 100 companies, or 94%, had gender diverse boards. And what you see on your right is a different norm. I'm now signaling to you that the thing to do is to be gender diverse. So if you want to be part of the club, you better get on with your diversity rather than being one of the six companies which is not diverse yet. So if you're interested in learning more about uh, the research that I summarized for you, um, either have a look at my book or, oh God, I'm doing this again, or <laughs> visit the Gender Action Portal, which is an online platform, searchable by theme if, you wanna, if you're interested in closing gender gaps in education, in health, in political participation, in economic opportunity, searchable by country, etc. Where what we're trying to do is to summarize the research that has been done evaluating these various interventions. And what we do, being an academic institution, we summarize it at Harvard, but then we send it back to the author so that the authors have the final say on whether we did a good job um, on the summary of their work. And with that, I wish you lots of luck and much success in redesigning the world and, in fact, promoting change. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for your lecture. Um, we are now going to open the floor to questions from the audience. If you were so kind and um, let us know your name and affiliation and wait for the stewards to bring you the uh, micro. The floor is open. I'm sure you have a lot of well, questions. Yeah, um, 
very first one up, fourth row. Hello. <laughs> Thank you very much for your talk. Um, my name is Emma Fenlon. I'm a people barrister um, and a member of uh, Middle Temple Inn. Um, I'm sure it's the same for lots of people here, but um, you've confirmed lots of things that um, I've had intuitions about since, I think, forever. Um, I went to quite a traditional school, and there have always been paintings of men, and it's kind of oppressive, actually, to learn in that environment. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you, because it was an argument I had with my boyfriend last night, and when I suggested, um, <laughs> I suggested that um, in Middle Temple, I don't know if you've been, if you haven't been, it's a five-minute walk away, and it would, it's a really, really beautiful and historical building. Um, but it's covered in um, paintings of monarchs. And so that means it's predominantly male. And they're beautiful paintings, and they have great historical value, but it's where all of the students of the inn have to come and dine for at least 12 dinners before they're allowed enter the hallowed halls of the bar. And so I had to go through that and sit there, and it's a, it's an odd, it's a really odd place to be. But it's beautiful, so nobody questions it. And my question, sorry, it's coming, is... Um, <laughs> is that when someone says, yes, but what about history? It's really important that we remember those before us. And so, for example, in the Kennedy School, you've got lots of examples of you know, women leaders, and you can put them up, and that's great. There weren't so many examples of female monarchs, although there are two, and that's great. It's not nearly enough, and so I wonder... I, I mean, I, I, I am tempted to turn around to the inn and just say, well, forget about the monarchs and just put up really great barristers or just put up really great people. You know, why not? But I feel they probably won't want to do that because it's really important to remember history. And so how can you turn around to somebody and say, we, we'd like this to change, but also we don't want to totally subvert the importance of history? And my final thing is that I think the next thing that you should research are weddings. And I think you should look into why only men tend to speak at weddings. And that's all I have to say. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I don't think I have too much to say on weddings, but um, I will give this more thought. <laughs> um, you know, on the paintings, um, I think, I mean, you're basically asking for a value judgment, right? Which I'm not really equipped to give. I mean, you know where my values are. Um, I have given you the evidence, and certainly my book gives you the evidence, that seeing really is believing, and that um, very serious experiments can show that people's self-confidence is affected by the kinds of portraits they see. So one experiment, for example, looked at um, uh, what kind of speeches men and women would give after having been exposed to either male or female role models. And it does turn out that it hugely matters who you think of at that moment. It's called stereotype activation. And so, yes, it does matter. And so the, it comes down to value judgment. Is it more important kind of to honor the past? And, or is it possible to honor the past and find additional space for some of these counter-stereotypical people who were currently missing? So what we did at the Kennedy School, quite literally, is we didn't um, take down any men. But, you know, there's lots of walls and there's lots of places. Um, we, we actually did take some down and move them to a somewhat different place, but everyone is still up. But we added many more portraits of women. And I don't know the space that you described, but maybe with some creative thinking, there could be um, space that could be made available for some female role models. Um, yeah. Women 
Sertra. Hi, I'm Kate Grusing. I did go to LSE, but I run an executive search business and have been involved with the Lord Davies' work and women on boards. And I'm interested in what pushback you've gotten on the $8 billion that is misspent, I think was mm. the implication, because obviously this is a, a very complex challenge, and some of that $8 billion is effective, but not all of it. Mm. And uh, you've probably seen McKinsey's done some interesting analysis looking at the multifaceted diversity initiatives that underscores the challenge with measuring the ROI, but that doesn't mean that it is necessarily a bad investment. So I'm interested in the, the pushback you've had and you know, how professionals, whether they're talent management professionals or headhunters or consultants, can try and help um, make that more measurable. Yeah. So I think the pushback varies. Um, and you know, our definition of evidence also varies. So evidence for me quite literally is experimental evidence. So somebody who just does before and after can't really prove that whatever you try to do had an impact. Now, I'm not saying before and after is not a very good first step. Um, that is actually better than what most organizations do. And so I'm, I'm, I'm super happy to have the debate. But what people would normally tell me is, well, I kind of believe you, but my program, of course, is the exception. Now, I can't prove that. And then you know, I kind of have to go back to them and say, that might be great. But it would be very useful if we measured more and really evaluated what works and what doesn't work. And that's maybe one of the overarching messages of the book also, that we should really do a better job and encourage organizations and businesses to do a better job to evaluate the impact of whatever they're doing. And that, for me, means that we do have a control group and we do have a treatment group. And you know, the interesting thing is that we do these experiments in marketing, and I don't quite understand why marketing is more important than people. So... I'm out there a bit, you can tell I'm pretty passionate about this, I'm a bit out there saying, look, you take financial decision-making quite seriously in your companies. You also take your marketing quite seriously. You spend like thousands of dollars, probably millions, on trying to understand whether it should be zero or diet. I'm not picking on any of these companies, just saying. But bring the same kind of scrutiny, the same kind of rigor to your people management. And I'm actually quite optimistic. I think big data, for example, is already changing dramatically how we do HR. Um, I think I can safely predict that um, what now is called people analytics is going to completely revolutionize HR, and it's going to provide much more rigor to our people management and will make our people management a bit more comparable to some other evidence-based decision-making. So that's kind of what I'm arguing for. I'm not saying there couldn't be a program that hasn't been evaluated, but on the evidence that we do have, based on that evidence... I have to conclude that we either don't know or it's not working. A person on the third row. Hi, um, I'm, whoops, don't mind me. Um, I'm Coralie, I'm a master's student here at the LSE. Um, I used to work for quite a sort of traditional institution that had um, some of the problems that you're talking about. And looking back on it, I think that the HR department had tried to implement some of the things, kinds of things that you're talking about. Um, and I used to sit on hiring panels there and 
So, for instance, one of the things that we had to do was that when you got all the CVs in for a job, everyone had to individually go through separately and grade them against certain criteria. But what inevitably used to happen is that all of the people on the panel would get into one room together and talk about it together, and then everyone would just input their scores at the same time. Mm. Um, And the reason that I bring this up is because I think, obviously, um, the kind of design um, methods that you're talking about are really brilliant, but... They can, if they were done by a HR system, they might be seen as quite top-down. And actually, if you don't change the whole culture to make the people in an organisation realise why it's important, then it might not have as much impact as, yeah. as we might hope. And so I was wondering if you had any kind of ideas about how you try and change the culture alongside the actual methods and the kind of forms that we're talking yeah. about. Yeah. Um, it's almost a separate talk, but I do think um, behavioral economics and behavioral design can actually speak to uh, cultural change as well. And it often starts, again, with design interventions rather than focusing on mindsets. And that's kind of how I approach this as well. Uh, I don't think any organization would really say that they want to discriminate against women or the, you know, the traditionally um, disadvantaged group, whatever that characteristic of that group might be. Um, and most organizations, I think, would say that they kind of do want to draw on 100% talent. And that, in many ways, makes this discussion a bit easier because I'm actually not arguing. The book does say that quotas are actually not behavioral interventions. Right? A nudge is a design intervention that changes how we present choices, but we're not actually constraining choices. Um, So that opens many doors because people kind of like the idea of doing a better job predicting future performance. And, I mean, I can see what you're saying, but I don't know whether, you know, the the process that you described um, didn't work because people didn't have the right culture or just because they were lazy and, you know, didn't didn't think about what was important. Um, So sadly enough, I do think checklists, for example, are very helpful. They are pilots have checklists, um, emergency rooms have checklists. I think we should have checklists in HR departments as well. And quite literally, to improve your process, say, do these individual evaluations and submit your ratings to a computer before you talk to each other again. Then the computer is going to come back with the aggregate. And that is completely changing the dynamics because another thing that I'm sure you experienced is that if we talk about our perceptions, we tend to defer to the person highest up in the hierarchy. But if we all individually submit our ratings, the discussion is completely different. If the average comes back, let's say, on a scale from 1 to 10 as a 5, and the leader gave the person a 9, that is hard to defend. If, uh, clearly, there must have been people who gave the person a 2 or a 3 to come up with an average of 5. Um, so, I, so I'm um, a bit more optimistic maybe than you are that um, evidence can help people improve their decision-making. I mean, one book that um, has, I, I found quite fascinating was a book that was written by Laszlo Bock, who is um, the head of HR, which is called People Analytics uh, at Google. People Operations, it's called, excuse me, at Google. And, of course, Google measures everything, um, including, <laughs> including um, uh, their people management. And so, for example, they measured what the optimal number of interviewers is. That's actually not rocket science you can measure at what point an additional interviewer really adds value or when do these interviewer scores start to converge. So at Google, it turns out this was four. There's nothing magic about four, but big data can help you do that kind of analysis. They also measured and held accountable their interviewers for their ratings. 
So it's actually doing a good job in evaluating these CVs. And that changed them dynamics quite um, dramatically. I should also say that they literally analyzing thousands of um, interviewers or hiring managers, they found that basically everyone is average, you know, <coughs> some his, hits and some misses, and there was this one person who was really great at predicting whether somebody would turn into a great Googler. Now, you all will think, oh, it's probably me. Um, I don't think it's you. It's very improbable that we can do this. Oh, la, la. Okay, <laughs> let's go hands. down for a moment. Um, Sotro? Hello. Hi, my name is Dunya. I work um, in a design firm that's actually... Or we're kind of in a frustrating position. I'm part of a research group trying to figure out how we can develop some more um, best practices to help encourage equality in the workforce. And we do a lot of these things, and we actually fit a lot in with the way that you work. We try and measure things. We look at, you know, uh, performance as opposed to potential, or we try and define what potential means and measure everything. Um, and yet there's still not necessarily in the numbers or definitely in the numbers of senior associates, but it's very hard to get people to, to think that this is a that there's still a problem and to understand the more intangible aspects of, work, of, of, of being in a male-dominated workplace. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, what can we do, or is there, do you have any suggestions of ways of culturally changing? I know you said that's kind of maybe another talk, but more than just being able to throw numbers at people, because that... That doesn't seem to be doing much. Yeah. So um, let me give you an example um, uh, from my own institution, the Kennedy School. Um, now, you already know that I love data, so you won't be surprised by what I'm saying. Um, I'm actually a big fan of making intangibles tangible. So here's how we do this. Um, and I just heard before from, from Carola that LSE is actually trying to do something um, very similar. Many, many academic institutions measure faculty workload by the number of classes or courses that we teach. The Kennedy School uh, measures workloads by points, and we give points for everything. It has advantages and disadvantages, and I'll tell you about both. The advantage is that we make intangibles tangible. We make public goods, service activities for the community tangible. So we give points for mentoring, we give points for advising, and it did bring into the open that, you know, the only African-American female faculty uh, was advising all African-American students, and nobody ever counted, nobody ever compensated her for her efforts. Um, it also means that we constantly have debates over, well, is this compensated accurately, and shouldn't we get more points for X and Y, and not this and that. But it did, in fact, change the culture dramatically in that all of a sudden, all these public goods that overproportionately were provided by women were all of a sudden tangible. And so, so that's a big advantage. The, the other advantage that I like, of course, as an economist, it makes things tradable, meaning not everyone might be a star teacher. And so you can say, I'm going to teach a course less but I'm happy to serve on more committees. So I take on more administration or do this and that. So I think that's attractive too. So here's the downside. There's certainly a lot of research on crowding out of intrinsic motivation. Right? Meaning now that I compensate you, you will never do anything for free anymore. And the early studies were studies with kids 
where kids were playing and then the researchers came in and then they compensated them for building a tower or whatever they were doing. And then they withdrew that compensation again and the kids stopped playing. Because now they associated building a tower with you know, getting 50 cents. Um, and I think we're seeing a bit of that. Um, but as academic dean, I mean, workload was kind of one of my jobs. Um, it's always the same kind of three faculty who will call you and say, I think I need half a point more for this. Um, I think they are kind of complicated no matter what. Um, but this is a bit, bit more impressionistic. But I have to tell you one more, um, one more story. These are just stories, but I do think they highlight something bigger. Um, so when I was academic dean, one day I came to the office and students were camped out in front of my office saying they needed to see me immediately. Um, and their concern was we don't have enough women faculty. I'm like, yeah. I'm the person, that's exactly my research, love to talk to you. And the interesting thing is not actually our discussion about female faculty, but they actually didn't care about female faculty, but they cared about the people they see on panels, behind podiums, giving talks. They didn't distinguish between you know, tenure professor, full professor, assistant professor, a fellow, a guest speaker, a PhD student, a postdoc. They cared about what they saw, and we had never measured what they saw. So at the Kennedy School, we have 12 different research centers, and every research center runs its own research um, seminar series. It turns out we had actually never measured what the co demographic compositions, not gender, demographic composition of these speaker series were. So what I did as academic dean was to introduce accountability because the research centers already have to write a report to the deans. And part of that report then was to report on the demographic composition of their speakers. And it was a big aha moment for many. It's like, oh my God, you know, 90% of our speakers are male. And that, that's kind of making the intangible visible. And so I'm, um, I do believe that uh, this kind of evidence can, can take us a long way. In the front, please. Thank you. I'm feeling a bit nervous about asking this question. Uh, I'm Terence Bendixson. I'm an urbanist, and I'm a research fellow at the University of Southampton. In 1945, my sister and I came back from Canada after being evacuated uh, there during the war. We were met at Liverpool by my mother, who'd been in the women's army. She was dressed in uniform. Uh, she had brass buttons down her bosom. She had crowns on her shoulder. She had a peaked cap on her head. And she had a thing called a Sam Brown on, a leather shoulder strap, originally designed to um, enable someone to carry a sword. Uh, I was 11. It's still a very powerful image in my mind, and it's, I think, conditioned my view of my mother for the rest of my life. You haven't said anything about mothers and motherhood. Um, could you add to the very interesting talk you've given anything about the importance of mothers? Thank you for this question. I'm happy to talk about mothers, um, and I will also talk about fathers in the interest of gender equality. Um, but yes, there is definitely research suggesting that mothers are some of the most important role models that boys and girls can have. 
And so your story is, in fact, supported by the evidence that men with uh, counter-stereotypical mothers, certainly at the time, um, uh, decre- thankfully, um, decreasingly so, but certainly at the time, are more likely then, for example, to have a partner who's also working outside of the house. But let me also talk about fathers, because fathers are, in fact, also quite interesting, in that fathers of daughters tend to care more about gender equality. There's research on male CEOs, on male judges, and male politicians, and for all of them, it mattered whether they had sons and daughters. So sadly enough, my husband and I only have sons, so I have to carry the whole weight myself. But um, <laughs> I'm trying to do a good job in educating, in helping them become feminists. But yes, so it, that's exactly right. I mean, there's other research, which I also, I mean, I talk about all of that in the book, but then I also talk about the impact of World War II. The World World War II was maybe the biggest impact, had one of the biggest impacts for at least women in the Western Hemisphere, in the UK, but also in the US and in other countries um, that were involved in in, uh, the war, sadly enough, uh, because women were called to action in an unprecedented fashion. And these women, some of them went back home, but you can show that that shock, literally that shock, um, significantly increased women's workforce participation. Third row in the middle, the first, I mean, one after the other. <laughs> uh, first of all, thank you very much for a seamless and very, very excellent presentation. Um, I'm Salma Rahim. I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Management here, and I actually do research on diverse teams. So I was very keen to know if we need to bring, as you suggested, um, unspoken behavior or you know, thinking and make it more transparent. Um, do you not then need to sort of very uncomfortably hold up a mirror to people's unconscious bias? And do you have any suggestions on how is that best done if these same groups of people have now to confront their unconscious bias and then have to work with each other, um, if you have any thoughts to share? Yeah, that's a very, very big question. So first of all, thank you very much for your compliment. Um, generally, lots of research suggests that that's a very good thing to do, so you should all adopt uh, um, complimenting others. Not just women, <laughs> but more generally. Um, so that's a very good thing. <laughs> but, uh, uh, I mean, no, more seriously, um, I don't think I have a very good answer. I don't think I have a very good answer. Um, other than to say that um, can changing norms is difficult. No question. Changing norms on smoking was difficult. Changing norms on littering was difficult. But we've changed those norms. So it is possible, but it does take time. And I fear we have to go through that hard work um, of people confronting their own biases and of transparency, measurement, and accountability, bringing some of those biases into the open. Now, having said this, I actually think it's of course, very important to not criminalize, you know, norm violators. So ideally, we want to create the kind of environment where, I don't know, the red flag is the right thing. I haven't, you know, haven't evaluated that, so I don't know. But do something low-cost, not intrusive, very inclusive, and define bias very broadly. So, you know, my, um, 
you haven't asked me the question, but I'm going to answer it anyway. Um, of course, one of the big questions for us is how to bring men into this discussion, and I'm super excited to see such a diverse audience tonight. And how I normally do this also in teams is to have everyone experience bias, not just as somebody who is biased against other people, but somebody who could be the victim of bias. And if ever you have taken an unconscious bias test, you will find that, for example, you prefer tall men to short men. You have lots of preferences about people, not just in terms of gender, but in terms of their religion, in terms of their backgrounds, in terms of their body size, in terms of their height. And often that opens doors in the sense that everyone could be the victim of bias. And so an inclusive environment could, in fact, be beneficial for everyone. Um, but I agree with you, the devil here really is in the detail, and um, we have to do a much better job measuring of you know, what really works. I mean, including, so, for example, a biggest surprise for me was that psychologists have run a number of studies showing that political correctness seems to improve, and that seems, improves um, performance of teams. And that was a bit surprising. So I come from Switzerland, from a Germanic culture, and PC wasn't a big deal for me in Switzerland. When I first came to the US, I was completely stereotypical and thought, oh, these Americans, you know. Mm -hmm. Clearly, they must be feeling and thinking different things, and PC is just whitewashing this. But, you know, think of the beach that I showed you. What's one thing that PC does is not allowing people to utter certain things or make certain jokes. And, um, and that might be the mechanism by which these teams have been performing better. But I don't think we have the answer yet, other than saying uh, make things transparent and find a way to enforce the norms that isn't particularly painful for the perpetrators. Thank you for coming out um, to be here with us today. I'm Nina Mohanty. I'm a master's in management student here at the LSE. So I have a kind of two-part question. But... Madeleine Albright, who is the first female Secretary of State for the United States, once said that there's a special place in hell for all women who do not help other women. Mm -hmm. And yet, a lot of times, we see women not being completely supportive of other women. Yep. So I wonder why you think that is, um, because I fully believe that men and women are equally competitive, so I don't really think that it can be chalked up to competitiveness. But then also, on a similar tangent, um, what do you say to women that don't call themselves feminists? Hmm. Um, so let me start with the second question. Um, you know, so my definition of feminism is believing in gender equality. And you know, that's a values question, right? What can I say? I mean, if people don't believe in gender equality... That's their choice, right? That's a values question. I don't think as an academic I have much to say about the choices people make in terms of the values. But I think your first question is a very good one and an important one. Um, and it goes back to uh, what I summarized kind of in passing, really. And that is that these biases are shared almost independent of our own sex. Um, but here's some more interesting research um, that Kathleen McGinn of the Harvard Business School and Katie Milkman of Wharton conducted. They were measuring survival rates. This is a terrible word, but what they meant was they were measuring survival rates of people who worked in a law firm. And what they meant with survival rates was, <laughs> are you still there five or ten years from now? 
right? So you're starting there now as an associate. Are you still there five or ten years from now? And what they were interested in were the factors determining whether you're still there. And they found something very curious. They found that you are more likely to still work in that firm if there are more role models who look like you. That's not particularly surprising. But they also found that you're less likely to still be there the more people, the more peers there are who look like you. Why is that? So what they're arguing, and I kind of think that's probably right, is that we might have a theory of gender-specific competition even if this is not actually happening. So if you see 20% female partners, for example, in your law firm, and there are 50% women in my team, I might be thinking, oh God, there's only 20% slots for people like me in this company, but we're 50%, so I might better go to a different law firm where there are fewer women. And you know, so that can, of course, lead to competition which is focusing on the same sex rather than across gender competition. It's a hard problem. I mean, I can see why Madeleine Albright would have said that. Um, but at the same time, the evidence is really quite strong, suggesting that it is the counter-stereotypical person who we are biased against, and our own gender plays a much less important role. Third row in the middle, or second row. Hello, thank you very much for the talk. My name's Laura, I'm a third year PhD student in the Department of Social Policy here. I study happiness and behavioral science. I'm curious for a bit more of your thoughts on women's preferences, and just to play devil's advocate here. Couldn't it be that some gender gaps exist in part because of different and quite legitimate differences in preferences? So for example, women don't prefer top jobs because they don't want the stress and they mm. prefer more free time. Women do more housework than men because they prefer houses to be cleaner. Um, um, thank you very, for this controversial question and for so eloquently sharing it with us. Um, I don't think we can exclude that possibility at all, right? Um, given that we do not have a level playing field, we don't know. So my argument basically is let's level the playing field and then let's people do whatever they want to do. Now, I can be a bit deeper than that. And that is, I thought what you were asking, it's related to your question, was so where do these preferences come from? Maybe if women really intrinsically prefer, prefer um, certain types of work, such as care, um, to men, maybe that's just biology and that's, we should accept that. Um, there is some interesting work um, by uh, economists who have been trying, and uh, John List, um, among others, who have been trying to find societies in the world uh, which are matrilineal. And one of the societies is the Kasi in India. And what they did is they went to the Kasi and ran some of the experiments that you will be familiar with as a behavioral scientist to measure willingness to take risk self-confidence, competitiveness, the kinds of things that in our part of the world, in the UK or Switzerland or the US, uh, were used to gender gaps in men being more competitive, more risk-loving, and more self-confident. And they found completely the reverse pattern. These women were more willing to take risk, more willing to compete, and more self-confident, and also walked ahead of their men. So clearly, 
it cannot just be nature. Um, and so nurture must play some role. But I don't, honestly, I don't think any scientist will ever be able to tell us, you know, what's true preference, intrinsic preference that women or men have, kind of independent of the environment that we're in. But let me add one more point. I do think, again, it's not exactly what you, what you asked, but it is related. One black box that we know very little about is the household. Right? Because, because you talked about kind of um, cleaning and care work. We won't have gender equality if we, all, we don't also have gender equality at home. And so that's um, you know, a research frontier that maybe some of you want to start attacking. Um, those intra-household negotiations are super interesting and in some cases are more important in determining people's choices than whatever the work, um, workplace could do. Last row, Hi, um, I'm Clara. I work for the Twinkle Space Mission. And uh, we hire a lot of scientists, astrophysicists, and we find it hard to hire women because, of course, there's none doing the PhDs, because there's none doing the undergrads, because there's none doing the A-levels. And so I do a lot of work in schools trying to get girls to do science at A-level because otherwise we can't find them with the best of intentions. And, of course, there's no interviews to do A-level. It's just how well they do in tests and whether they want to do it. So I looked at how well they did in tests, and they do better, the girls, at the time they choose. So they do better, but they don't choose them, and I don't know what to do at that stage, so I was wondering if you have any advice. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, th- thank you for this very simple question at the end. <laughs> um, I mean, first of all, I think you are doing the right things. Um, you are providing mentorship, support, sponsorship, and help, um, and also kind of the counter-stereotypical role models um, that, that I mentioned earlier. You know, in the end, if, if really we have equalized the playing field, um, maybe it is due to choice. I don't think we're quite there yet. I don't think we're quite there yet, right? Because these women will still work in environments where they will be the minority, and they might not like that. They might be concerned about the kinds of norms that are prevalent in those kinds of environments. I've actually spent, I mean, just by, maybe by happenstance, a bit, um, I spent quite a bit of time in um, uh, uh, talking to uh, women in math most recently, then women in STEM, and then before that um, uh, in uh, Silicon Valley and in California. And yes, pipeline issues are absolutely real. And, uh, you know, so I completely agree with you that we do have a big issue. I mean, also, just to, again, be gender balanced in terms of care work, right? the big losers, economic losers of our time are blue-collar working men who have lost their jobs, and new jobs won't be um, around in our part of the world for the foreseeable future. And men haven't entered care work um, almost at all. And so that's another problem that we have. So gender segregation is quite interesting if you look at this here historically, as Claudia Golden has done um, of the Harvard Econ Department. Gender segregation of jobs definitely has decreased over time, um, but primarily so far by women entering traditionally male-dominated jobs, but men have not entered traditionally female-dominated jobs kind of the same degrees. So I don't think I have a, a silver bullet other than the kinds of things that you are trying to do. Um, 
and kind of leveling the playing field. But let me give you kind of one more thing that I, I wasn't aware of. So when I um, met with um, kind of the women in math um, at their annual conference, one thing that I didn't know about and they weren't aware of um, was creating a hurdle for many women was that math, apparently, is very, very competitive. And you participate in those competitions during your career. Um, and generally, women do not like competitions as much as men. So while I don't think we'll be able to solve this problem, I, I still believe, even in those fields, there are some lower-hanging fruit um, that we can harvest. And of course, as you said, it starts in school. Uh, research on um, kind of when these gender biases are formed suggests that it happens between four and six years old. Um, so when you, uh, one study looked at um, uh, the interpretation of wooden puppets. So they gave people puppets which had no, no sex. And then one of those puppets were kind of, was a bit crunched a little kind of um, uh, in a weaker position. And the other one was kind of in a power pose, was big. And then four-year-olds will say, weak, strong, so they were asked to describe them. Weak, strong, tall, small, big, um, small, etc. Six-year-olds will say men, woman. So it starts super early, and it includes um, the kinds of cartoons that our kids watch, the kinds of books that they read. Um, and very interesting, if that's something that interests you, kind of the early childhood um, impact, a really interesting work on the impact of media is done by the Gina Davis Institute. And it is quite scary when you look at her data analysis and kind of unpacking the kinds of books that kids are exposed to, the kind of TV programs that kids are exposed to, which very rarely have counter-stereotypical role models in them. And one thing that I didn't know beforehand that I also found shocking um, that she reports is that the typical crowd, so we have a crowd of people or a crowd of kids, the typical crowd consists of two-thirds men and one-third women. You know, there's no real logic behind this, but we have to fix it. So, super hard problem. Um, I think the pipeline issues are super hard because they start so early um, in, uh, in kids' education. Looking at the time, we have, um, we have one more question to go. One more, the last one. Very much in the back, middle. Thank you. Hi, thank you for your talk. My name's Asia and I studied at LSE um, and now I work in a construction company as a project manager. So you can imagine there's um, a lot of sexism and banter, but it's part of the culture of our organisation, unfortunately. So I was wondering um, any sort of advice you could offer for not only the way that women are treated, but also the way that men are treated and how they can take uh, paternity leave more, for example. Because I've seen, for example, in my workplace, when women take maternity leave, they don't often come back or they get put on more admin roles and um, their responsibility falls. So how can we encourage the workplace to support these women within their roles and also encourage men to uptake paternity leave as well? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I absolutely acknowledge that sometimes we need a hammer rather than a nudge. And I do think there's much to be learned from the Scandinavian countries. And in that, there's lots of research suggesting that what we should be doing is paternity leave rather than maternity leave. 
And what we have to learn from Scandinavian countries is it's not enough to do paternity leave, but in fact to provide incentives for men to take paternity leave. You know, again, it might go back to the question of maybe fathers don't care. And maybe they don't want to spend time with their kids. Maybe it's choice. Or maybe they don't dare to do that because it's still counter-stereotypical and lots of biases against stay-at-home dads, for example. Um, so what Sweden did, which you probably know, is that there is a package of parental leave and that can be increased if the man takes it. And so these incentives have dramatically changed and increased the fraction of men taking parental leave and changed the norms, um, including kind of the role models that our, our kids see. This is not a nudge, this is more of a hammer, but um, you know, we have to use all instruments available. It's been a great pleasure to have had the opportunity um, to listen to your very insightful and wise words. Um, thank you so much for coming, visiting LSE. I know you are on a very busy um, travel schedule. Um, so let me ask you to join me to thank Iris very much for this amazing lecture.